I don't know how I want to start today. What kind of mood am I in? Sup, gamers? Oh my god. <laughs> That's not real. You have to do it. It feels weird listening to a Remote Ruby episode if you don't say sup first. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? Sup, gamers? Sup, dude? <laughs> Sup, nerds? Nerds is right. For my birthday, Shannon... She, I love decluttering. Like, if it was up to me, I'd get rid of everything in our house. She's like, do you want to get, each get rid of 33 items for your 33rd birthday? <laughs> and we did that. Nice. But what, that, what that did was it also caused me to clean up. So I have a bunch of stuff like on my shelf back here, like Legos that I bought that I have to put together. And, hey, um, by the way, happy birthday officially on the show. Oh, thanks. Yeah, happy birthday, guys. Andrew made me sob a little bit with his really sweet tweet. Yeah, I farmed so much engagement off of y'all this week. It was crazy. <laughs> Chris and I are going to be racing to do the same thing for your birthday. Nah, mm-hmm. that's why I'll, I'll tweet it first. <laughs> Come on, man. I got to get those impressions. We have a lot of cool stuff to talk about today. I got a quickie for you. Bridgetown 1.1 beta is out and it's got some really cool stuff in it that kind of allows you to take, I think, take Bridgetown 2. A different level. And I think now it's actually almost surpassed what 11D can do. There was like one thing that 11D was able to do that Bridgetown couldn't do. And now Bridgetown can. So I'm having a lot of fun over there. What was that feature? Basically modifying the HTML after the build process. So say you have a bunch of external links and going through and adding rel no refer no opener and target blank is just a pain but it's like good practice and so what this new feature allows you to do is basically run a process at the end that will go through and modify every single link to have those attributes or you could modify all your headers to have the link in front of it and you could generate source images and just basically mm-hmm. modifying the html and xml with noko giri it's pretty slick i'll see if i can grab a link to it or to that specific one and stick it in the show notes. But I actually had a few commits to this release as well. Nothing major, just some small stuff. But I don't know, it's shaping up to be a great release. I'm excited for everyone to get their hands on it. Awesome. It's like it's going to really bridge the gap. It's, this is the problem like, with I, committing to it. I clicked a button right when you said that and it like muted me. So uh, I laughed. Don't conveniently. worry. He groaned. I'm using... Bridgetown 1.0 beta still because I haven't touched my site, but you also put in Torchlight for syntax highlighting. I did that when I rebuilt my site in Bridgetown. I hooked into one of the Bridgetown events and ran the yarn or the Mm -hmm. JavaScript command. Yeah, to run Torchlight on all my HTML files to put syntax highlighting in. And I was unsure that was the best approach. And so I was excited I was like, oh, Andrew's going to come in and show me the way. And then you did the same thing. And I thought, this is the way. There are a few different ways you can do it. Hooking into the end of the build cycle is good. But as I was doing that, and that's the reason I haven't like put it into a post yet. I was like, it's kind of pointless to do this every single time I make a change on the page. Unless I'm specifically doing something with like syntax highlighting, right? Because it literally just, it modifies all the HTML in place and 
you can kind of get into a weird place where Bridgetown's at this point now where it's like way faster than it was in the beginning. So you can get into this weird place where like Torchlight runs, but like Bridgetown is like already like regenerated and Torchlight has basically made the file like stale kind of, and you have to re-kick it off. I ran into that. Yeah. So I, I ran into that and I was like, well, there's like a few things that I could do here. And I was like, Hey, I could just control this with an environment variable or what I could actually just do is make a rake command for the watcher. But at the end of the deploy process, run that command in the rake file instead of just running it every single time it reloads. Cause I was like, I don't need to do this, but if I want to run it, I can, but chances are, if I'm like kind of editing the way Torchlight is presenting the code snippet, then I'm not doing a bunch of heavy lifting of the file anyway. So the likelihood of you running into this weird conflict issue is way, way lower. So what did yeah, you hook a, into? A Which time. event? I don't remember. There's a demo on my GitHub right now. I hooked in to the post write. And I also, okay, one, one thing that made it a lot better is setting the priority on that hook to high. So that basically prioritizes that over the other build commands. So that basically makes sure it runs first. Sure. And I ran into way less issues once I added that. Yeah, there's there multiple ways to do it. And I think it's really just what's the best way for you, right? Because you could just add like a proc file and you know run a separate process. Or you could add it to the end of the deploy process or add it as a yarn test. Or, you know, there's so many ways now. So yeah. So Aaron Francis, who does Torchlight, him and Colleen will actually, I think they're joining us in two weeks, but Aaron made Torchlight. And so that's the first time we actually had a chance to interact. So we had a Zoom call because I wanted to build a Ruby API for it Mm -hmm. because there's like Laravel, maybe it's PHP specific, but maybe it's Laravel specific. I'm not sure. Libraries for actually doing this. Cause right now, like we just give it this MPX torchlight command, which goes through the entire directory looking for any HTML um, files. Yeah. There's a really like, he described the process to me. I was like, Oh, we could totally do this in Ruby. And then I was like, yeah, this is great. And it's been like three months and I've done nothing. I ran into like a few weird things with the command line utility. I mean, it literally says unstable, I'm pretty sure, some version of beta or this isn't guaranteed to always work on the site. So I don't know, you're going to run into the stuff, but what it produces is so much nicer. I think we've talked about on the show before, but if we haven't, it uses the VS Code language server or something. Mm-hmm. It's a language server, I couldn't remember, to actually do the syntax. It's not just the syntax highlighting, but actually the like breaking it down, like parsing it. Right. And so you get way more languages and way more up-to-date modern support for languages than you do with some of the other like JavaScript libraries you bring in. I like it. So the difference is, on, uh, I can't think of any of the other ones right now. Yes, you download Prism, it's a package. So like Torchlight is an API. So like I pay for the $5 a month plan or whatever. And every time I want a syntax highlight, it goes to some Torchlight server with my code and highlights it and spits back the result. Yeah. It's nice because typically, I mean, Cramdown plus, what is it, Rogue do a pretty good job, but Cramdown is not 
like an actively maintained project, I don't think. Like it's, I think it's stable. So there's like a lot to be desired there. That's something I've run into several times over the years is rogue stuff, whether in Rails or static sites or whatever. But the problem with Prism and like Highlight JS, I think is the other yep, one that's popular, it. is that they run on the client. So like when the page loads, then it like runs the syntax highlighting. Good and number flash. one, yeah, it's expensive to run in terms of memory. And it's also that flash of content, which is gross. And you still can't do all the really dope stuff that you can do with Torchlight. Oh yeah. yeah, Torchlight also has a thing. I'm sure these other libraries do, but like Torchlight has a thing where you can tell it what lines to highlight. I think it'll actually like give the appearance of dimming the rest of the code. Yeah, that's an option. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm a big fan of it. It's better than Rogue for my... Oh yeah, we use... it's 100%. I think we use Rogue at Podia. So we used to keep our UI library in a separate repo. And for a myriad of reasons, we realized that it was actually better to bring it back into the the monolith, the majestic monolith. And in order to do that, then we had to basically support syntax highlighting, which we used to get with middleman basically right. for free. So what if I told you? Oh, no. What if I told you the day I joined Podia, I've been plotting to pull that library back out? That's fascinating. I would. Oh, yeah. I'd be open to the discussion. The problems we ran into, like we're a small team, right? And so right. anytime we needed to push a minor change, we had to publish an NPM package, bump the NPM package version number in our app, redeploy. It was difficult. Plus, I think a problem too is like that package was UI docs, the UI library, and we still are in this kind of phase where like we have legacy UI code, like legacy styles, we have new styles, we have some styles that should really just be specific to the app, not to the library. And Yeah, I will say that I've had this discussion with other people on the team, but I feel like where we are right now the UI library being inside of the app is good. But if we ever want to really elevate kind of like our style guide and like all that other stuff, we pull out all this like atomic component stuff that doesn't change. And then in the app, it uses those to build up the other components. So an interesting thing about that is like we could in theory one day like pull out our view components into a library some kind of engine. We could do an engine. I don't know. There's a lot of ways we could go. I think one of the first things, since we're just like airing all of Podia's asset laundry here, I think one of the other things that we really need to tackle soon, I know you and I have had discussions about how the new version of Webpacker or Shaka Packer solves a lot of the problems we have with Webpacker, but we've got to do something about that before I think. Like that, this is actually us trying to either move off Webpacker or improve it is actually what led us to move the UI library back inside the app. That makes sense. Because the problem I ran into was that SAS C was deprecated. Mm. Or Node yeah. SAS was deprecated. One of those was deprecated. I can't remember which one it was. And so it also is the only library holding us back from moving to M1. Like our entire nice. setup worked on M1 without, except for that. So I updated it in the app, but then there was a mismatch in the... UI library. So I updated it there. And when I updated, I mean, I replaced it. 
but then there were deprecations and the deprecations, this is really, this is where it gets really complex. When our main app tried to build the UI with the new version of SAS, the not node SAS version, it was fine. So we had deprecations. I fixed them in UI and everything was great. But when you tried to start middleman, it was actually processing SAS through middleman, not right. through like Webpack. That was on a Ruby gem that we couldn't update. And so we couldn't right. run the docs. And at that point, I was like, this is making me sad. And that's when all the other stuff came. We were like open heart meeting about it. Yeah. I think if you were to say, Andrew, go rebuild all our components, I would make it an engine. I would very much copy kind of the style that Primer View component does. They do some that's really good cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to say something controversial. Surprise. Yeah, surprise. I hate SAS. That's not that controversial. Oh, well, cool. Well, then we're good. But I feel like over the past few years, as I've dove deeper and deeper into Webpacker and like this asset bundling in, in general, SAS is always the problem. And it's such an expensive thing too, if you're not using the Dart library. I mean, even if you are, it's still an expensive process. But like, if you yeah. have to use Node SAS, like it's just, ugh. Yeah. And then you get that combined with, oh, well, if you're using Material or Bootstrap, then they yep. have all their stuff. But now those libraries have moved off of SAS. I'm pretty you sure. around for less? I think I just missed less. I, I, mean, think, I think when people I still started, use it, but... Yeah, yeah. When I started SCSS, was the thing I had never seen like an SASS file right. until I like worked on a Ruby app. And then I had always just seen like less being referenced. Wasn't Adam Wathen a fan of less back in the day? Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. I might have just made that up. Someone was. Bootstrap, Bootstrap was built on less. And then they made a big migration, I think, with version three to SAS. Yeah. It was three or four. wanted less. Or maybe, I think in three, maybe they supported both less and SAS. I'm getting sassy over there, Chris. And <laughs> yeah, I remember those SAS. are weird times. And also, like the community was, oh, let's go SAS and get rid of curly braces and whatever else. And that's the most depressing CSS to write. Yeah, it was a weird migration. And then it's the same kind of thing like CoffeeScript was to JavaScript. You've stepped too far away from the language you're compiling down to. So debugging things and just easy mistakes and whatever happen. And so I think like settling on the SCSS syntax is pretty good or post CSS, which is like super similar. I think that is really nice because SAS can do some cool things. Like you can say, hey, here's my primary color and I want to have a 10% darker and a 10% lighter Right version and it'll figure it out for you. It's cool, but you know that's not something that's portable to other languages or post CSS necessarily. You could write a plugin to do it yourself or whatever, but it like strayed a bit too far because I think it'd be great if CSS itself was just like, hey, we support the nesting. That was the really main feature I ever used. They're about yeah. to. I think it, yeah, they are one of the proposals. Well, they're about to, but then how long does it take to actually right. ship in a browser? Safari that's, 55. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be one browser holding out, and it will be Safari as usual. I don't know. Safari's been better recently. I see core team members of Safari tweeting like, tell us how to good. improve it. So yeah, that's good. There have been several things over the years that like WebRTC related stuff was just 
Safari just never implemented a lot of that stuff for a long time. Random things, but I think they've been, it seems like they've been putting a lot more effort into staying modern and up to date. So that is good. One thing Safari does to their benefit, I guess, is some of the features we don't get are because of security concerns. And so I get it and I respect that part of it. But yeah, like when we recorded with Zencaster, which is, uh, I assume, WebRTC, we couldn't use Safari. It was strictly limited to Chrome and Firefox. And that's always kind of a bummer when you pay for a service and you like hit it. And it's like, oh, you can't use this browser. Yeah, nothing will get me more tilted and also just angry if I like find like a really cool product and they're like, yeah, we only support Chrome. And I'm like, well, then... No, I don't want it. <laughs> then I don't support you. Well, to be fair, though, the Safari extension ecosystem is growing rapidly right now and is getting a lot better. I haven't checked it out in a while. It used to just be like 15 extensions. Yeah, I, I know. Now it's so much more now. And the extensions themselves are getting even better and better. I have to show you. You'll have to remind me sometime. I got to show you this raindrop extension. It even works on your phone where you can highlight things on a page across the web. And when I go back to the page, I can see that I've highlighted that and it syncs into That's raindrop cool. and I can add notes and annotations to it. And to a city in. Yeah, exactly. But it, the fact that I can also do that on my phone, like I can highlight text on my phone and add an annotation to it just the same way I do it on my Mac. It's incredible. I feel like with Safari, it's, I'm cool when other Safari users talk crap about Safari, but like when Chrome users talk crap about Safari, yeah. I'm like, nah, come on now. Nah, nah, get out of here. Sorry, I like my data. I want to bounce back to uh, when Chris was talking about SaaS kind of, like the SaaS movement, trademark, and the CoffeeScript movement. We've talked about this before, but I think I kind of, I don't know if I've said this, but I've kind of like formalized, I think, why... I like things like ERB, ES6, CSS. And I think it's because programming has inter- like introduced so many problems on its own that the more tools like that I use that introduce other problems makes it just, it's more context I have to keep in my head, more problems I have to debug. And like, I loved CoffeeScript and Haml and all those things. But I think recently or over the past yeah. couple of years, I think I've just shifted back to give me as much like vanilla of those tools as I can get. Yeah. I mean, they were solving problems at the time that browsers have gotten a lot better, but also your tools like ES Build and whatever else are a lot better too. I do think that like we're swinging the pendulum and we're like, hey, JavaScript sucks. Let's go replace it with CoffeeScript. Yeah. It's like, oh, that was too far. Now we're like right. getting back down in the middle and settling into a nice layer on top that makes convenient things for us that the language is just not necessarily the full set of conveniences that we're used to in Ruby. We have so much to take for granted in Ruby, especially with the conveniences you get from like active support. So it's kind of wild. And then you like, you see that, oh, there's a subtract module and node that we can use. Yeah. (laughs) Like all the stuff Lodash supports or provides, you know. ES6 was the game changer for CoffeeScript. I think the only unfortunate thing about... I learned jQuery with ES5 and stuff, 2009, 2010 and stuff, but 
I think the unfortunate thing about me jumping into CoffeeScript was that I didn't fully understand JavaScript syntax, which over time I got, but I think it made me not embrace JavaScript more, which maybe some people argue is a good thing, but I like having a good knowledge of it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's so much stuff's built on it. There are little things that are easy to make a mistake with, though, that it feels like some of the stuff like async await is kind of bolted on top or whatever. And some of that, like recently, I realized that in my ES build script, I have auto reloading and everything built in. But it turned out that there was a situation where I couldn't figure it out for a little while where it would rebuild, trigger rebuild, you'd save the file, it would trigger the rebuild, and then it would reload the page correctly, but it wouldn't show you the changes. And I was not awaiting the actual rebuild step completely. It was like, okay, we're going to go do it and do everything else as well, but we're going to not wait on that. And I was like, oh, yes, so many of those little things that, you know, or just context switching between Ruby and in a language like JavaScript where things are asynchronous like that. It was like, oh yeah, another one of those things that I don't spend, I spend a lot of time in JavaScript, but not enough sometimes. Or like you feel like you need to like really spend most of your time in JavaScript to like keep all of those differences between Ruby and JavaScript in your head at all times. Andrew, I'm going to shift gears. Did you get a house? I think so. So Andrew muted himself, took off his headphones and took a phone call. And then I saw him fist bump into the air. And that it was that $30 million mansion, right? The remote yeah. Ruby castle. The funding yeah. came through, baby. At yeah. 5% interest, which I have recently learned is the current interest rate. Dude, we are right now like trying to finish our house before our interest rate was locked until end of June or something. And we're trying to find a carpenter to finish the staircase. And nobody obviously is just not working because everybody's like booked weeks and weeks out in in advance. And if we don't make it in time, then we have to pay another month rent, another month of construction loan interest and pay more money to extend our rate lock because we locked it back in like March, February or something at like 3%. So if we lost that, it would be awful. So yeah, we're like in that. I actually have been out at the house from 8 to uh, 2 p.m. today, basically. I feel like I have a layer of drywall dust all over (laughs) my skin, but we now have fiber internet. So nice. Andrew, did you confirm you have fiber internet at your new place? I don't care at this point. Yeah, I don't care. I'll just get a satellite at this point. I'm moving to a nicer part of Phoenix and a newer part of Phoenix. And I'm pretty sure Cox, I think, serves all of Phoenix. Like I have Cox right now and they have fiber. I didn't upgrade to the fiber because I don't need it actually because I'm just one person. So it's actually pretty nice. You don't realize how much of a hit your bandwidth takes if it's, you know, you got someone upstairs streaming Netflix and someone downstairs surfing YouTube. Mining Bitcoins. Yeah. And then you got me mining Bitcoins under your porch. All of a sudden, like when you don't have that much traffic on your router, I haven't needed any more than I've got right now. See, uploading a video that's a gig every week is Uh, going to be a game changer for me. But we're also like, 
Well, actually, I guess I don't technically need it. I had some of the Google Nest cameras. That, well, I still have them, but I don't use them right now. And those are always uploading to the cloud. So that's quite a bit of just data being uploaded at all times from your, your cameras, especially if they're 4K. New stuff I've got is supporting the, the Grizzlies, of course, all the ubiquity stuff, which will record locally. So that thankfully won't have to upload all kinds of crap, but... You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for keeping Jomer <laughs> in Memphis. I'm about to downgrade my internet because I have Eero Pro 6s. No, Eero Pro 5s. And the max I can get out of them over Wi-Fi is about 600 down. And I pay for a gig. And so I could save some money right now. But my upload speed, because I have Xfinity, so it's still running over coaxial. So it's only 30 up. It's not yeah. true gigabit. It's just fast Beautiful. download speeds. Yeah, Spectrum likes to uh, pretend that they have fast speeds and it's like, well, technically, no, you don't. What blows my mind is these Unify Pro access points can do like 4.8 gigabits per second over Wi-Fi, which is nuts. Amazing. So I think I'm prepared so that if residential internet ever gets to be like 5 gigabit, then... I should be able to handle all that. I think up to 10 gig in the house, which is sweet. Xfinity started offering two gig down in some areas here. So mm. it is possible. Yeah. I saw somebody on Hacker News is getting 25 to their Jeez. house. What? <laughs> Symmetric too. I was like, good God. Wow. But I think that was like San Francisco or something. Checks out. What's cool, though, is I live out in farmland in the trees and have fiber internet. And I used to live in the city and couldn't get fiber. So I live in the middle of the city and I cannot get AT&T fiber. It's all around me, but I cannot get it. It's insane. I picked back up working on my active record course that I put down. How many more lessons did you add? So you'll be proud of me. I took out... One section and was... And added three? (laughs) No, sorry. (laughs) When I say I took out one section, I focused on one section. I pulled it out of my big to-do list and just made it its own and started planning out the video of what the problem we're trying to solve is. It's, I'll just tell you. So it's talking about like serialized data. And so starting with an array and a hash, basically two columns Tackling the problem first with serialized with Rails. Talking about how that's backed by YAML, how you can tell it what type it is, though, and then moving on. Like, these are multiple videos, probably. Then moving on to, with Postgres, using JSONB, cover the difference of, like, HStore, JSONB. You're going to do the actual, like, array columns, too? Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll migrate... So there's one video on Array, one video on JSONB, and each column from the earlier examples will be migrated to those. So I actually, it was good for me because then there were some questions I had and like I dove into like things about Postgres I never wanted to know. But I think I I can do this thing. I like it. Hi, my name is Andrew Mason and I'd like to tell you about Honey Badger. Whether US East 1 is down or you forget to add a configuration file, everyone has an outage from time to time. When your next outage occurs, transparency is critical. The difference between a minor annoyance that people soon forget and a fiasco that creates sustained resentment is how you communicate. That's why you need Honey Badger. 
Honey Badger is a crucial component of your incident response plan with their uptime monitoring service that now has an exciting new feature, public status pages. Create a new status page with custom domains, branding, and more. Don't let Twitter be the only way your users can find out if your app's down. Sign up for Honey Badger to improve your incident response with a shiny new status page that you'll be proud to show users. Visit honeybadger.io and start giving your users a better experience today. Let them know that Remote Ruby and specifically Andrew Mason sent you. You just reminded me of there was an old talk from people who worked at GitHub that were talking about like designing the diff page. Mm-hmm. And they were like, sometimes that's 100,000 lines of diff changes, which means every line is going to have red and green highlights. And if you do that with spans and whatever. And speaking of learning more than you ever wanted to know about Postgres, that was what I was interpreting from their talk because they were like in the implementation inside WebKit seeing how efficient using a class or an ID or a tag and the different ones and how performant they were to basically make this page render as fast as possible in the browser. And it was like, so you ended up in some C code just trying to implement (laughs) a little CSS here. And yeah, but that's kind of what Colin and I ended up doing a couple weeks ago where we like, we upgraded GoRails' server to Ruby 3.1. Or what? Or three one two? I forget what it was. Three zero, I think before, and Ruby just wouldn't run, and it would complain about slash devs. Uh, you random, and we ended up reading the Ruby source code to see how it actually compiles that stuff, and we eventually like discovered the server's kernel was like really out of date for some reason, and it wasn't automatically updating like I thought it was because some old DigitalOcean thing. And I was like, well, we spent eight hours trying to figure this out and we found the solution. I don't think that we learned much from it, but we feel a little familiar with the Ruby C internals. So I was like, this must be how Tenderlove feels, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's I'm excited for him. Rust today. He's feeling Dang. a little rusty. He's, Jason has this ability, and I, I do too, because I'm pretty sure it's the ADHD, to like pick up on patterns that like no one else would normally pick up on. <laughs> and so as soon as I said that, I was like, wait, I said that, I said something about Russ earlier to Jason. Is he going to call me out on this? And he did. So yeah. need to get your tetanus shot. Hey, ah, I got one of those. Go. I got one of those last Sunday. I think we talked about it. Maybe we didn't. I had to go to the ER after I got back from RubyConf. Oh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. So they were like, ah, we don't know what this is, but we'll just give you a technical shot. I told Brooke, you must have just been wanting some attention after Lennon got so much yeah. at RubyCon. You were like, well, I'm going to go get sick too then. I had a fever Saturday after RailsConf and I thought, oh, damn it. Like, this is it. I got to report my COVID. I kept testing. Never happened. It was whatever that infection was. Hashtag blessed. We can talk a little bit about some stuff Andrew and I and many other people at Podia have been working on. So I guess by the time this launches, we will have a new tier at Podia, which is free. So we are now Yay! we are now opening Podia to everyone. That's super nice. That's such a great thing because if you're trying to help people make their first dollar, making them spend money to do that is not ideal and now you can like help everybody which is awesome it's amazing yeah so it just come with a set of challenges that 
Um, one might not think about, but mostly that is historically we've never had a free plan. We've had a free trial, which functions as a Stripe subscription for a free plan that expires after 14 days. And then after that, like it just shuts down the app. But now it's like, we got to make sure it's open for everyone. But now we also have limits in place. And now certain plans have certain limitations in terms of the number of thing X you can do. A free plan only has a limited, like you can only sell like a digital download and I think coaching. And you can't sell like a full course on the free plan. So now we, I don't know, there's not a lot of logic there, but my teammates are all really smart people and have done a really great job with all of it. But along with it, we've opened a beta program of a new checkout workflow. And that's what Andrew has been working on. He flexed, but he's been doing great work. I was going to ask on that since I've been in the weeds and that stuff lately. It worked before, like you put in your email and then it's kind of a little wizardy thing. Yeah. Wasn't it? it if you're it buying a course. Yeah. And it was step by step. And one of the things for us is that we obviously like in the last, since I've been in the last four years, we've added more features and we've grown and it's been hard to get some of those features into checkout because it is such a step-by-step process. You don't want to end up with 50 checkout steps. So the new checkout that we're building is single page. It still has steps. It still has a workflow, but it's all in one page. And it is a hot wire special I'm using turbo frames. I started on the project with Seb and then Andrew kind of took my place when I went to like over, I guess, help out on a higher level with all these freemium projects, but it's been a ride and it will continue to be a ride. All right. I'm just going to have to stop you because you've been really underselling what you've been doing. When he says, I've been kind of looking out over kind of all this stuff, what he really means is he's been managing all of this and like helping every single team so that we all are pushing towards this shared goal, but individually on separate portions of the app. So Jason's done a great job of also, not only is he doing that, but if we need him, he's there eventually. (laughs) Yeah. We've been still doing a lot of technical pairing and stuff. So that's, a few episodes ago, we were talking about the payment element and like how we were migrating to it. That's what we've been using it for. And the new payment element, we were basically done with our checkout for this launch. We have more stuff we're going to add. For this launch, we were basically done. And then there was like one bug. It was something with subscriptions, I think. You want me to lay it out for you? Do it because we had to rewrite our entire checkout flow to yeah. accommodate this payment element. We did have to do that, but I'm just going to shout out Seb here and also just pat myself on the back. We almost completely rewrote the entire thing in one day. I mean, obviously, after that initial push, there was stuff and things, but we did the majority of it in one day, which is, I think, just a testament of using the tools Rails gives you and just using Rails. So the issue with the subscriptions, oh my God, if CJ listens to this, I found him at lunch at RailsConf. And even if someone had been sitting beside him, they wouldn't have been by the time I saw him because I <laughs> plopped right on down. I'm sorry, CJ, but I had to get it off my chest. And so what the issue was is that the way the Stripe embedded elements thingy works, whatever the name of it is, Stripe payment element. element. 
Stripe payment, payment elements, yeah. payments. That's the it's word a, I keep losing. It, it's, it's a singular a, element. Yeah. Right. Elements, elements refers to the it's old. Other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was confusing the crap out of Jess earlier by accidentally munching those two. So the way it works is that when you arrive on a page with a Stripe payment element, there has been work done prior to you getting there to determine all of this information about said payment. And to basically, by the time you get on the page, the element already knows everything it needs to know about this payment. What taxes, the amount, the interval was the big one. And so all these things that it knows about said subscription. And the issue was, is that when you're on the checkout, we have, for instance, the ability, like you could have a a monthly plan or you could charge yearly or you could do both. So... We have all these options and like when you're checking out, that is the place to say, hey, like you have this monthly plan for $50 a month, but you could spend, just get it for the whole year for a hundred or those numbers don't add up, but you know what I'm saying. And that's something that I felt very strongly about keeping in the workflow because that is something that I do a lot. I'm like going to like renew a subscription and I'm like, oh, I could just pay for the whole year for a hundred bucks. Yeah, I'll just do that. So we ran into this issue of basically, we want the users to be able to modify things about the payment amount and the payment interval, as in like annual, monthly, et cetera, while the element is on the page, which you cannot do without recreating the element, which means remounting the JavaScript element onto the page, which means wiping out any information that you had previously put inside of it. And for me, that was like a no-go. It was kind of annoying. And it was like, I think like, in my opinion, it's like we should want the user to be able to like seamlessly choose to give our creators more and thus receive more out of it on their end. So it's like, if you change your payment to a year and then we just wiped out all that credit card information that you had to go to your car to find your wallet to like type in the number... And then you put your wallet away and then you change your payment plan and then it resets the whole element. You got to do it again. That's ridiculous. So what we ended up doing was because we were in this situation of basically, if you want to change the amount or the interval or and other things about the payment. Yeah, because like you, we support taxes, which can change. Yes. We support coupons, which yep. can change. Multiple things. So what we ended up doing, which I kind of had a sense as soon as we hit this bug and Seb and I spent days trying everything. We read the whole API. <laughs> we tried all the tutorials. We tried everything. We were smashing our heads against the wall for like several days trying to figure this out. And finally, as soon as we ran into the issue and we realized what it was, in my brain, I didn't say it out loud because it's just demoralizing to say it out loud. I was like, I guarantee we're going to have to redesign this checkout which is what we had to do. So previously it was a single page. Every single item was on one page. But now because modifying different elements of different steps of basically checking out modifies the, the taxes, et cetera, coupons, et cetera, et cetera. It's a kind of like a stepped workflow now, but still on one page and all controlled with Turbo in this really kind of slick way where basically you come onto the page and there's three collapsed cards. So it's like a card summary. And then there's one expanded. And as soon as you fill out the information on that card, you hit whatever button, 
and it takes you to the next step. And then you're like, oh, wait, I need to go change information in the first one. I, I put my address wrong. Okay, I just hit edit on the collapsed card and it closes the current card and re-expands the one you want to go back to. And all with turbo, so no reloading here. And it's really fast. So eventually, you finally get to the last step of actually entering in your payment information. And because of the way we did this with Turbo, as soon as you hit save on like the step previously and it collapses that card and opens the payment card, that's when we create the payment intent. And the payment intent for Stripe is the thing that has all the information about what the payment is and for and et cetera. So if they then were like, oh, wait, uh, I actually want to switch from a monthly to a yearly plan and they click edit to edit that, then we collapse the Stripe card. And when they get back to that step, we recreate it with the information that has been changed or update the payment intent. And because we're doing this with Hotwire and because I think we just have a great team thinking and working on this from like design to product to implementation, it came out, I think, maybe even better than the original implementation. Of now, it's like... I agree. Very, it's simpler. Very clean. It's a lot faster because that was something that was beginning to become an, an issue in my mind is like every time you change something about the Stripe element, it's got to go as Stripe and do all this other stuff. And if it's all in one page, you could feel the slowdown of like the JavaScript on Stripes and like trying to recalculate because we were also trying to do hacky stuff of just trying anything to allow us to edit the damn payment interval. And it's just getting slower and slower and slower. Went back to the drawing board, redid it. It's infinitely better now. The code also, because Seb and I basically got to do a redo on the UI portion of it, because thankfully the backend code we wrote was solid. We didn't have to change any of that. It was all really just kind of the front end and the workflow and some of the controllers. And what we kind of ended up with in the beginning was what I called turbo soup. So many of these little turbo things, like updating so many different things and like this controller responds and then it has to change these certain elements in the page. And if you forget one, the whole thing breaks and you're like, why isn't this thing look right? Oh, because we forgot to add this turbo thing in this partial way over here. And it was just a disaster. So I think when we kind of were able to go back and kind of really re-architect it and kind of separate it into steps, those steps kind of naturally became turbo frames. And then the logic is all kind of contained inside of it. And we even got to the point where like, if you're maybe storing like something on like the object about where it's at in the workflow, we were basically naming the turbo frames that name. So if I'm on payment step, and Rails has the like was previously or previously was or whatever. So basically it would go down to the view and the view would say, okay, update the turbo frame for this step and also update the turbo frame for the previous step because we want to collapse that and then open this one. And so we just were able to clean up a lot more. And I don't know, I feel really good about it. It's turned out really good. And I will say something that we didn't, necessarily explain is that the reason Stripe does this historically when you render the elements you get a token and you pass that token to the server and then process the payment the problem has been we've talked about this before with like payment intents 
and now strong customer authentication, you can end up going back and forth between the client and the server multiple times. And so Stripe has solved this problem with the new payment element where it'll actually capture the payment like on the page. But in order to do that, it has to have all the information. So previously where we could pass that to the server, have the server generate the information, pass it to a payment intent. Now, by the time we prompt a user for a credit card, and it makes sense, like you can't show a user credit card fields and then like with this payment intent and then change the payment intent after they've entered the card. So it actually makes sense this workflow too. Yeah. That it's like, by the time they see the card, what they're authorizing is what they're going to get charged. And I'm really thrilled about it. I'm also thrilled because it's going to allow us to start supporting so many payment methods that we didn't support previously. We could have, but they would require a lot of setup. And with the new Stripe payment element, as long as they're enabled in your Stripe account, they just appear and work. And it yep. didn't, because of how payment element made is made and like the workflow, it didn't add any extra logic for us. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah. That approach is exactly what I ended up doing in Jumpstart as well. Having the sort of a wizardy steps that you can eventually create the subscription, render the payment element, collect all your stuff up in advance. Because one of the things I looked at was like, when Stripe creates the subscription, they create an invoice, but the invoice is not editable. So if you were to go apply a promo code or billing address to the customer, you can't actually reissue that invoice or update it. So the new tax or discounts or anything like that currently just doesn't re-render, even if it's a draft or just open invoice there. It's the first invoice for the subscription, which I was trying to take and render the payment amounts on the page with. There was just no way, at least currently, to address that. But they are working on their new orders API, which I believe will support subscriptions in the future. It's only one-time payments right now, but I think it, the intention is it addresses this stuff. And I also wanted to mention there's a shipping element that I told CJ, like we need a billing address element as well because the shipping address element is great, but it's also not necessarily billing. Oh, okay. They're heading in there's, the, an, there's an address element in beta, but I guess that's a shipping one. Yeah. I didn't know there Yeah, the shipping address one. I think it's mostly just because they're doing one-time payments as the first draft of all this stuff. So a lot of this should get cleaned up in subscriptions and whatever later on. It's like heading in the right direction. But yeah, right now it's kind of tricky to work around. You kind of hit on the point that I like forgot while I was telling the story of like the reason we were literally could see the finish line and then suddenly had to stop everything and restart a bunch of things is because the information that we wanted to change or that we needed to change worked for products, but not for subscriptions. So, hey, anyone from Stripe, if you're listening to this, why? And also, please add. Yeah. Like you said, when it creates that invoice, you can't update the amount on that invoice, which again, like Jason said, makes sense. But from a development standpoint, I thought Stripe was supposed to be the easy method. Why did PayPal take us an hour? And we've been trying to bang out this Stripe thing for like three or four days. The funny thing that I ran into was effectively you want a white labeled version of Stripe checkout. You want to display all the options. You want to have the 
ability to add a promo code on the checkout page. You want to be able to change the quantity, any of those things. And Stripe Checkout can do all of that, but you as Stripe's customer can't do it just yet. And I was reading all the payment element docs as like, voila, it solves all your problems. Exactly. And I get through the entire implementation. And I'm like, oh God, it doesn't work. And then it led me to the same approach that you guys are taking. Like, let's make it a wizard. We'll collect all the information, just like your Shopify's wizard for email, then billing address and shipping address, and then payment information at the very end. But even that, they like put the promo code on the right side next to the price. And if you were to change, that would screw up other stuff and you'd have to like go back through. And so it's nice to have that sort of wizard to solve the problem now. And then hopefully later on, it can kind of be one simpler page and maybe most of the turbo stuff can go away and be replaced with some simple stimulus JavaScript hooks, a promo code and have it just say, because it'd be kind of nice. The payment intent knows which subscription it belongs to. So you should be able to say, hey, let's add a promo code to the payment intent and use the JavaScript to like talk to Stripe and then not even have to hit your server. That would be sweet. And I'm hoping that's kind of the direction they end up going because it would be really, really slick to have all that. But we'll see. It's a great solution right now and it works well. That's what I landed on for Jumpstart. I need to polish it up if I can ever get my house finished and and whatnot. But yeah, I'm excited to see that go live. I think it'll really feel slick, especially with how Podia's got to support a lot of different checkout flows. And so does Jumpstart. And like I'm building this partially because of tax support, but Hatchbox version two is going to have metered billing. So I want to be able to like do that and whatnot and support all that and pay and Jumpstart. But all that said, Considering how painful the SCA stuff was, the payment element simplified my stimulus controller from four different branches because I had to know ahead of time, are you signing up for a subscription with the trial? Because then we want to set a payment method up as a setup intent for the future. And if you're paying right now, then we need a payment intent and blah, blah, blah. You had all these different forks and now it's like, yo, just give me a client secret and boom, we'll render that and we're done. And all of the SCA happens client side and it's way simpler. So it's cleaning up nicely, but it's still not complete. Real quick. I just want to say the benefits of making friends in the Ruby community and either mentoring them or just meeting with them on a regular cadence is that I don't know exactly where y'all were in this process, Every week, Colin and I hop on a call in the evening and we got on this call and he's like, what's up, dude? And I'm like, dude, you want to hear what's up? Stripes, what's up? The guy was just fully off the rocker. And he was like, okay, I'm glad you're talking about this because we just ran into this same issue. And I was able to basically explain, like, he was like, yeah, we were thinking maybe we could do this or maybe we could do this. And I was like, you can't. (laughs) <laughs> and basically just be like, really like talk through the issue together as we both understood it and be like, yeah, well, at the end of the day, by combining like the knowledge that we both had on our separate applications, but still the same problem. I was like, I'm confident that y'all can't do it like that because we tried that. And it sounds like y'all are thinking maybe the same thing that we're thinking. And it's kind of great to just kind of talk through that. So just plus one in making friends in the community. I agree with that. 
Chris and I talk, we've talked in depth about Stripe before. So it's having people working on the same thing as you, even though you're in different positions. The other thing I did want to, while we're on the subject of Stripe, part of this freemium, we call it freemium, part of this free work we're doing is when you downgrade your subscription, like if you have a, one of our mover plans and you downgrade to a free plan, historically, when you switch between plans, we make it instant, but now like we'll schedule the downgrade and the Stripe subscription schedules API is amazing because what you do is you just say like subscription schedule create and you tell it, this is what the subscription looks like now. And this is how I want it to change on this date. And Stripe just handles it. And it is a uh, chef's kiss, as they say. I'm really excited for all the work that we're shipping and a lot of it will have shipped. And it is really cool to be a part of Podia, like going free for people as well. Because like you said, Chris, like I signed up for Podia when it was coach, but I didn't have a product. I didn't launch a course. That was in 2017. I didn't launch a course until 2021. So I couldn't have yeah. paid for it that all that long, but yeah, it'd be cool because now people will be able to sign up and not have to. Yeah. You want them to be successful and you want to make money along with them making money. So this is a nice way to make that possible. And you're not just charging aspiring creators who maybe don't get through it for nine months. You don't want to be charging them for nine months. It just feels not as nice. You want to yeah. succeed with them. It's a great, honorable thing to do. I think it's awesome. It'll be interesting to see like from a business perspective, how much more support is there and you know, how much extra additional random things do you have to deal with like fraud or spammers or I don't know, lots of things like that come with the territory of making something free, freemium. It'll be good. I think you'll find all those things. You'll get interesting new problems to solve and whatever. So it'll be cool. There was an episode maybe a year ago at this point where I came to y'all with like an idea for a course. And during that conversation, I was like, well, I want to use Podia, but I don't want to pay for it when I'm not actually sold a course yet or like even built it. And I was like, when should I sign up for Podia? Thinking back to like all those things of like, <laughs> okay, well, I, and I never signed up because I was like, I'm not 100% sure I'm going to be able to complete this. And I was like, and all these other things. So like the thing that stopped me from signing up from Podia in the past is now gone. And I think that's what's exciting. So was this some sick power play by Jason? He was like, all right, we'll add that, but you got to build it yourself. So you got to come work for us. And then you were like, all right, screw it. Here we go. Yeah, something like that. Well, uh, go, before we go, because we didn't do this last week, the other day... I guess maybe last week, I released an extension pack for Rails on VS Code. And it's basically just I a collection that. of a bunch of the plugins that I use. And I'm testing a few out maybe to add right now, but it's called the Rails Extension Power Pack. So give it a try and let me know. It's kind of fun to build. Maybe I'll publish a quick... It's actually really easy to build an extension pack on VS Code. I was going back and starting to like update like a really old article of mine. And then I'm like, ugh, now I got to go get all the extension names. And then I got to pipe them all through the the VSCE command so I can get the titles and the URLs and everything. And it's like all this like annoying work. And I'm like, or I'll just quickly build an extension pack in probably like the same or less amount of time. And now 
this is like a canonical source going forward of like, these are the extensions I'm using for Rails pretty much. That's nice. awesome. Yeah. 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 Nice. I like, that was one of the things that like I used Janus for Vim way back when I started because it was the same thing. Grab this pack. We've got all this configuration for you and you're off to the races for Rails development and whatever. And so, yeah, that kind of stuff is great. You don't have to piece it together yourself and try those plugins that aren't actually good. You've already curated that stuff for people. So it saves a lot of time, which is great. Yep. And as I've talked about many times in this episode, I am constantly tweaking. So anything in that list is something that like every time I reinstall VS Code, those go in. And these are the ones I use. And I'm sure I'll pull things out of there just like I'll put things in. For the first time, I've actually found a really good ERB formatter, which makes me very happy because the only thing at this point, the only thing I absolutely despise about ERB is the fact that it looks like garbage because everyone writes it, indents things a different way. Nothing's yep. consistent. It's just annoying. And I never know like how to indent, like if you have a component.new with a bunch of arguments and then maybe it has something chained onto it. Where do you put the closing ERB bracket? Where do you put the closing parenthesis? On the same line, different lines, same indentation? I don't know. I don't want to have to think about that. But I finally found an, a good extension that produces a markup that I actually am happy with. So maybe that'll get added in the near future. Please tell me about that because I have used formatters like that in the past for ERB and they've never been quite what I wanted. Right. But well, that I've is. been starting to like run some of the views any of the views that are new that 7 I've created, I've started to run more and more of them through it. And it's just Gross. so much nicer HTML. I hate when HTML is not indented right. Well, I think that's your problem. I was going to say a pro tip is to no new lines, no indentation. Everything's on one line. <laughs> then you'll solve this problem. A minifier as soon as you hit save. Yes. Nice. I've solved your problem. And that is this week's Remote Ruby. Goodbye. 